British writer Charles Dickens is credited with creating some of the world's best-known fictional characters. Over 2,000, for that matter, scattered throughout his 14 and a half published novels. American authors, journalists, and politicians often refer to situations as being Dickensian. Jenny Hartley, emeritus professor at Roehampton University in London, has published three books on Charles Dickens. The most recent one, titled A Very Short Introduction by Oxford Press. We asked Professor Hartley to tell us about Dickens' life and accomplishments, including his two trips to the United States in 1842 and in 1867. Jenny Hartley, when did you first get interested in Charles Dickens? Ah, that's nice. My mother gave me a copy of Oliver Twist for passing my 11-plus examination, which is a a test that in those days uh, 10-year-olds took. Uh, to get into the next school. And uh, so I passed, and my mother gave me this uh, copy of uh, Oliver Twist, which had the original illustrations in it by Crookshank. And uh, I remember being you know, to- totally engrossed by it. So that was my first introduction. And my father was a, a, keen, a keen reader of Dickens all his life. Uh, I what, still have his, his set. <laughs> what was the message in Oliver Twist? Well, uh, the first, uh, for a child, uh, and actually I think for any first reader, the first thing you get from Oliver Twist is just the excitement, uh, the whole underground, un, you know, underground, uh, underworld that, that the child is uh, drawn into and, you know, how, how will he manage? He, he's our child hero. He's one of the first child heroes, I guess. You know, he's, he's a little chap and, uh, you know, you're desperately rooting for him. So for, for a youngster to read, I think it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful start, although it is, written in quite uh, complicated language. I think Dickens' language gets easier, really. Um, but it's, it's one of the short ones, uh, and it's got a, a, a cracking plot. Have, have you read it? Part of it. <clears throat> yes, I'm not a Dickson, uh, Dickens aficionado, but I'm interested in him as a person yeah. and his impact on politics, strangely, mm. impact on mm. culture. And yes. Tell, yes. tell me what you think that impact is all these years later. Well, uh, he's still he's still known, isn't he, as, as the champion of the underdog, uh, uh, of, of the child. You know, Oliver's great. Please, sir, can I have some? I want some more. Please, sir, I want some more. That 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 child with the bow, you know, is still iconic, isn't it? And we that starving child, and we still have that image of Dickens. I think as a very powerful. Uh, advocate, the speaker for for those who don't have enough, who, those who've been deprived or cast out or not given chances. So, um, particularly the urban poor, the, the, the in the cities, um, he he was really you know um, one of the first writers to see that. In he, he was a Londoner, and he saw, he experienced uh, firsthand what it's like to be poor in a city and to be anonymous. Um, so that's uh, and, and actually that message. Right from the beginning, right from Oliver Twist's great hit, and it was being, you know, people quoted it in Parliament. So he he had that resonance, you know, right right from you know the 1830s when that book was written. You know, I I noticed that it, that Oliver Twist was 1838, and that he was mm. only 26 years old. How often do people 26 write a book that's still hanging in there 200 years later? Exactly, exactly. He was. He was, you know, amazing. The energy, 
that man had. Uh, you know, there were more hours in his day than anybody else's. Um, you know, he really had it in spades. And I think you get that sense of energy going through, uh, you know, sort of pulsing through Oliver Twist, which is one of his first novels. Um, and really, it, it never left. I mean, he died. He died relatively young, Dickens, at, at 58. And I think he, I think he was just worn out by then, really. So what what was the next step for you, Oliver Twist, when you were young and uh, 10 or 11 years and old? And then I, I, I can't really remember, but I certainly studied Dickens at, at university. Uh, and I had some very good teachers of Dickens. Uh, and, you know, I still can, can sort of hear them, their enthusiasm uh, carries you along, doesn't it? And the, those big novels that take quite a lot of, you know, you... Uh, stamina to get into, perhaps. I, um, I think students have a bit more problem with it today. They're not perhaps used to such long texts. So Bleak House, Little Dorrit, you know, these are, are big, big novels. Um, and uh, But uh, uh, once you get into them, uh, you know, that the plots carry you along, the characters, of course. I mean, Dickens is famous for his characters, isn't he? Um, so they really... Uh, carry along and I actually I can't remember when I first read Great Expectations and David Copperfield which are my two favorites um, but those are the ones I've returned to again and again so when did you first publish anything about Dickens I know you have three books what was the first mm. one and why <laughs> the first one was uh, called Dickens Charles Dickens in the House of Fallen Women and it's about the work he did with this place called Urania Cottage, which was a, uh, a home for young women where they would be, come off the streets of London or perhaps when they came out of prison and had nowhere else to go. And this home, which was in West London in Shepherd's Bush, would take them in for about a year and uh, look after them, educate them, and then send them out to start new lives abroad because Dickens thought if they went back to the streets of London, you know, it would be no good. And the money came from um, a, an heiress called Angela Burdett Coots. Uh, Coots Bank still exists, and, and she was at a half share in that. And she was a friend of Dickens, and this work, and she, she, she financially supported this work and was very keen on it, and, and it ran for about 10 years. And why, why I was <clears throat> interested in it was... Um, Things always grow out of other things, in, 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 I think, or not always, but often. And I was, <laughs> I had a, a, a book club. Uh, my project before that had been a survey of book clubs, reading groups. And I'd uh, created one myself to read a Dickens novel over time. You know, they came out in serial installments. They would come out over a year and a half, these big novels. And I wanted to know what it was like to read one over a year and a half and that we know that people read them in groups. There's a wonderful anecdote of a, a charwoman, a cleaning woman, who in her lodging house, they read uh, a Dickens novel as it came out. They all joined together and clubbed together to buy the instalment. So I thought, well, um, let, I wonder what it's like to read over time. So I had this book club. Uh, it was wonderful. I really enjoyed it. And I also was thinking, well, what was Dickens doing at the same time that he was writing um, Little Dorrit? What else was going on in his life? And what else was going on was this Urania Cottage, this home for, for fallen women, uh, as we call them. And I, so I sort of started to investigate that and to 
ask questions like, oh, what was it like there? And actually, what happened to the women once they'd left? Was this experiment a success? And so I followed them, see if I could find any living descendants. So it was, it was um, actually, it's the book I've enjoyed most. It was such fun, as you can imagine, to, to research and to write. At um, your, in your book club, were you reading Little Dorrit? Mm-hmm. And what did you notice yeah. that happened to the book club over the time that you read it? The different oh, it was serial. wonderful. Well, we we got very fond of each other, as all book club members do, you know. And um, but I, I had one that you mustn't read ahead, you know. And um, <clears throat> the only time anybody broke that was um, they wanted to know what happened in the financial dealings. There's a finan- there's a swindler in that book, and they wanted to know what what happened to him. He's a, a banker. And, and I think it was that we were doing it at the time of some banking crisis, and she, and this uh, person was, she was so enthralled. I had to, I had to. That was the one occasion when we broke, she broke that rule. But um, I, I think we we found lots of things. I mean, you realise Dickens um, needs you to be a pretty careful reader if you want to pick up all his clues. So he drops a clue one month. And then maybe six months later, you've got to remember, you don't have to, but it's a treat, you know, if you do, if you remember, oh, that's so-and-so, I know, I met him six months ago, you know. And I think you, you sort of start to appreciate a lot more about his, his working methods. Um, they're not slapdash at all. He's planned all this out. He knows, or he's got it in his head, you know, how, how the book's going to develop. Um, and the other thing which... Um, I loved actually was um, reading aloud, um, and quite early on it, it became a thing to do. Oh, you know, let's read this passage aloud and see how. And people just so enjoyed it. Uh, and I think reading aloud is something that people used to do more when perhaps, did, than, when, than they do now. When did you get interested in publishing or editing a book about his letters, and how many letters are, are available to look at? <laughs> Well, that that was uh, another follow-on thing, and I, I've been very lucky, I have to say here. Um, so after I'd written that book, I was talking to Michael Slater, who's a very eminent uh, Dickens scholar and biographer, and he's the lead biographer of, uh, of Dickens in this country. And um, so Michael said to me, uh, what do you want to do next? I said, oh, I don't know, I think I want to edit something. And so he said, oh, well... The letters need uh, editing um, in time for Dickens' bicentenary in 2012. <clears throat> and what needed to happen was that there was um, a 12-volume edition of the, all the letters, and that was to be followed by a selected edition, uh, you know, just a one-volume uh, in 2012. But um, the people who had done the collected edition they, they were now you know moving on in life and, and, and not able to do it so um when i said uh, when michael suggested it it it, uh, it was very lucky for me uh, that i was able to edit the letters and there are probably <clears throat> about fourteen thousand um letters that we know and i mean there are loads more that aren't you know there's still some are still coming out you know which is great emerging which is great who was he um, writing to most of the time so he was writing to everybody he was writing to friends obviously to family to <clears throat> he was he was writing um to, to people the publishers he was every anybody who, because he was famous so early on as we said with 
Oliver Twist, if you got a letter from Dickens, you would keep it. You know, it would be from a, a rock star or something. And uh, I don't know that rock stars might write many letters. But uh, so people get even a chimney sweep would keep there's some very funny letters to to chimney sweeps to the man who was supposed to mend his clock and the clock you know was still wrong and, and dickens would never write just well even an ordinary thank you letter from dickens would be special you know so the, the these are a wonderful wonderful sort of treasure trove really um and a lot of what we know about dickens's life uh, and what he got up to came from his his, his letters um there were a lot to his friend John Forster, who would then uh, write his biography, um, and, that, and there's a lot of those. Um, but but to all sorts of people, to his children as well. Yeah, Jenny Hartley, how uh, much time did you spend in your professional life, and what was that talking about uh, Charles Dickens? Oh well, I, I was a lecturer, uh, an academic at the University of Roehampton, and um, I was. Uh, there were quite a few of us who were keen on Dickens, so we had a course actually on Dickens, which we all adored teaching, and um, I, I learned a lot from that. So we had undergraduates doing 19th century courses, but also doing courses on the novel, and as I say, on this particular course on Dickens. So uh, I spent quite a lot of um, my teaching career teaching Dickens, but I also taught, uh, with, uh, I did lots of courses on, on women writers as well. Um, but uh, Dickens was certainly something that uh, you know and he's he's such a gift to teach because uh, just as I say reading him looking at a passage in detail there's so much to look at and enjoy i i don't i mean i retired some years ago now and um i suppose i worry a bit that students won't have the stamina for the very long novels but some of the short stuff is wonderful too uh, and i think uh, over the years his journalism uh, is coming out more. He edited um, ma- a magazine uh, much of his life, certainly for the last 20 years of his life. He was a magazine editor as well. And some of the... Uh, and there are lots of his letters, I should have said, are to contributors to the magazines, and um, they're very funny as well. If he thinks you haven't tried hard enough, it can be very rude to you. Um, because he was such a hard worker, he expected it from everybody else. Um, and some of the journalism he wrote on behalf of the causes he um, wanted to uh, espouse or um, and some of the reflective journalism, uh, which tells you about his own personality. Um, people are reading that more now, I think, and, and realizing um, how, how good that is. When he was 30 years old in 1842, he came to the United States and spent about six months here. Then published a book called American Notes that uh, stepped on a lot of American toes. What mm. impact did it have in the United States then? And what impact, for that matter, did it have in Britain? Well, <laughs> it was an extraordinary episode in his life, wasn't it? Um, he went over, as quite a few writers had, and he was a young man then. He was under 30. and he uh, Well, he was about 30, wasn't he? And he, um, he went with his wife. And, of course, by then he was already famous. And when he arrived, his great uh, to-do, you know, great celebrity and people calling on him, he absolutely adored all that, you know, public dinners and and so on. And then he made the mistake of trying to uh, whip up support for international copyright because in those days you didn't get anything for stuff that was published outside or, in the, you know, in America. He got nothing for that. 
and he didn't think that was fair. And I mean, gosh, it has so much resonance now, doesn't it, with you know internet and streaming and stuff. Anyway, he he tried to make the case for um, you know that he sh- that the laws should be changed to protect the author, and this did not go down well. And uh, from being the darling of everybody, it you know it changed dramatically and he went off america he said this is not the republic of my imagination he told his friend mccready he he had an idea this wonderful idea of america uh, you know this wonderful democracy and, and and so on and um because he was obviously a huge democrat himself you know as i said he was a man of the people he came from rio quite humble um he wasn't working class but he wasn't a, a university educated man himself or anything like that and um and so he was he, he, and he was a man of extremes, you know, so he went from being totally in love with America uh, really to, to being very critical. And, um, and also he had some very arduous traveling to do, I, I think is true to say. But he liked many of the people he met, you know, he got on with lots of people, he made some very good friends. But it was not a good episode for him. And the book he wrote, which you, you refer to American Notes, is, well, it's quite critical, isn't it, of, of, of much of America. Well, there's, uh, cu- I mean, I'm, it's a 300-and-some page book but done by a mm. modern library. But I, I have a quote here that I was going to read, if I can find it. Mm. Uh, it just, it's just a sample of what he would say. He said, Greater means of personal cleanliness are indispensable to this end. The custom of hastily swallowing large quantities of animal food three times a day and rushing back to sedentary pursuits after each meal must be changed the gentler sex must go more wisely clad and take more healthful exercise and in the latter clause the males must be included also i mean there's a lot of slams at the american life in those days <laughs> he learned that you know the spitting the, the spitting in public in particular he really couldn't take and, you know he, he was uh, you know, he liked to speak his mind. He, you know, he 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 was very, uh, you know, strong on that. But you know, he he visited the prisons, for instance. He always visited prisons because his family had been in prison, and he was, you know, he knew a lot about that. So he was involved very much in that world. He visited the, the um, there's a, a, a an institute for the blind. You know, he, he he sort of wanted to see how America worked, the institutions of the place. But yes, I mean, some of the. Uh, the personal habits he really couldn't take, could he? So he had this bad experience then, um, and he puts a lot of it as well into Martin Chuzzlewit, the novel that came out just after. Two years um, later. Two years later, the Martin Chuzzlewit yeah, yeah. novel, yes. Yeah, and that is really very rude about the develop- you know, how America is developing and, and, and the swindlers and the, the sort of, you know, the people who are making huge claims and so on. Uh, so he's, he, he's, and the boasters and all that. So he's quite rude about America there and his hero fails to, to do any good there. But then later in life, much later, in, 19, in 1868, uh, so this is, you know, a lot later, 25 years later, he goes back. Dickens goes back to America for a public reading tour, and that is just like so different. That's a huge success. Um, people queue for you know overnight for tickets. Uh, they absolutely adore him, and so that in a way redeemed for him, I think, his relationship uh, w- w- with with America. Uh, one, one and he the, made lots of money. <laughs> one, one of the most interesting things I found. Uh, 
in, in my own research on Charles Dickens, mm. was when he came back in 1867, wrote the, uh, you know, in, in part of 1868, he had, he, he didn't, he didn't, it says they didn't appear much or say much in public, but then he had this mm. dinner on the 18th of mm. April, 1868 in New York City, 200 journalists, and he mm. stood up in front of the journalist and said, uh, also, to record that wherever I have been in the smallest places, equally with the largest, I have been received with unsurpassable politeness, delicacy, sweet temper, hospitality, consideration, and with unsurpassable respect for the privacy daily enforced upon me by the nature of my avocation here in the state of my health. But then he said he was going to – this apology that he made to these journalists was going yeah. to be contained in every – American Notes book that was published, and also mm. uh, the Martin Chuzzlewit book. And I actually mm. found it. It's still true to this day. Uh, wh- mm. wh- why did yeah. he feel the necessity to do that? Oh, well, because, because he, well, he was partly, um, he was canny, you know. <laughs> he, he, knew, he knew he'd uh, alienated people and upset people. So, you know, he, he was rowing back, wasn't he? Um, and I think he generally thought he'd misspoke. You know, he was a young man in a hurry, wasn't he, in, 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 in the 1840s when, when he, when he uh, spoke out against America. And he was, as I say, he was partly enraged that they couldn't... Um, I mean, he was always having rows with publishers. Um, you know, he was always... Thinking, and he, you know, he needed to because, um, you know, to get a good deal, you know, you, had to, you didn't have agents in those days to do it for you. You had to do it for yourself. Um, so, uh, uh, but he, he, he knew he'd overstepped the mark. And so, uh, uh, and I think, and he was getting, he was getting, um, he had managed by then to make sure that he got some money uh, from his uh, American um, pu- public, you know, the, the books that were published in, in America. Because, I mean, his sales there were absolutely massive. Um, and... Uh, so he he was grateful, but uh, and, and he was candid. But I think he was also quite genuinely um, positive, you know, and, and had moved on from that sort of uh, rage of eighteen forty-two. You know, th- this I'm going to pause just for a moment, and that uh, mm. I don't want to bore people listening. But for those who are not familiar with all of Dickens, or may have forgotten it, I'm just going to quickly go through the list of the 14 novels, so uh, the sure. names are familiar. 1837, Pickwick Papers. Oliver Twist in 38. In 1839, Nicholas Nickleby. 1841, The Old Curiosity Shop. 1841, Barnaby Rudge. 1842, The American Tour. 1844, Martin Chuzzlewit. Chuzzlewit. 1843, A Christmas Carol. 44, The Chimes. 45, The Cricket and the Har- Is it? How do you pronounce Is it uh, Hearth? Yep. Uh, and then in uh, 1850 was David Copperfield. Let me just stop there because yeah. we so often hear that Copperfield is his own story. Tell us what you think mm. of it. Uh, well, I think it probably is my favorite novel. It's certainly his favorite novel. Uh, <clears throat> and just before he wrote it, he wrote it, uh, this autobiographical fragment, which was a description of his early life. And that's what you get in David Copperfield. He really then sort of rewrote it as, as David Copperfield. So David Copperfield, the child, it's about this little boy um, who's, uh, who's left an orphan, as Dickens wasn't. But um, in, in what, what is similar is that they both suffer terrible hardship as children. And David Copperfield is sent to work 
in a, in a bottling factory, um, as Charles was. When, when, when Charles was little, his, his parents, his, his father was declared, uh, he, he was in prison for debt. And in those days, your family went in with you. And so this is a terrible thing, as you can imagine, being in prison. The young Charles, he was about 10, maybe, he was actually on the outside. He was set to earn his living. So he worked as David did. And so you can feel the, the pressure in, in that, on that child in, in the book. It's, it's just amazing. Um, when uh, George Orwell uh, read it, where he said he read it when he was nine, the, the writer George Orwell, and he said well, he read it when he was nine years old, and he thought it was written by a child, those early bits, because it has that amazing sense of what it is to be a child in it. Um, and I think uh, if anybody is thinking of reading Dickens, um, the first chapters of, of, of David Copperfield are a great place to start. Um, and it's a wonderful plot as well. Uh, you know that thing that is said about Victorian novels, make them laugh, make them cry, make them wait. And certainly... Copperfield uh, does, does all that, you know, brilliantly. Well, when he came to the United States, he met with President John Tyler. But in Great Britain, did he have any relationship with uh, Queen Victoria? Oh, Queen Victoria. That's it. Yes, it's interesting. He um, he did, he was <laughs> another thing we haven't talked. There's always another thing you can talk about <laughs> with Dickens. Another thing. <laughs> another thing he did was to theatricals. He was very keen on that. As I say, he had so much energy and. So uh, Queen Victoria went to see him. He used to raise money that way. You know, they'd be fundraisers. And uh, she went to see one. And I imagine they would be so funny, the farces he did. And she asked to see him, meet with him after the show. And he said, well, no, he wouldn't because he was still in his makeup, you know. And he just didn't think it was very dignified. So they didn't meet that time. But in the last year of his life, uh, they did meet. She, uh, he had an audience at Windsor Castle. Was it? Yes, I think so. And um, it's so annoying, this, because uh, <laughs> he was writing Edwin Drood, you know, his last novel, and which he died before finishing. And he, he said to Queen Victoria, would you like to know the ending? And she said, oh, no, I'll wait till it comes out. <laughs> and if only she'd said, oh, yes, can you just tell, tell me? Um, <laughs> then we'd all know. <laughs> but uh, so... Um, he was such a, you know, he was a great Democrat, really, so a Republican. So he um, he wasn't that interested in, in royalty, I think. Um, Let me... And I don't... Sorry, go on. No, I was just going to continue reading the novels and uh, get to a, a more oh, yeah. uh, a part of the story. 1853, Bleak House. 1854, Hard Times. 1857, Little Dorrit. 1859, A Tale of Two Cities. 1861, Great Expectations. Uh, then... In 1858, I have on my sheet here that I, I looked up, he separated from his wife, and I want you to tell that story. Oh, well, do I have to? <laughs> it's not a pretty tale. <laughs> he, um, as I said, he was doing these amateur dramatics, and uh, they would be fundraisers, so sometimes they would be in larger uh, theatres. And uh, for one, it, 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 uh, he um, he had to, uh, uh, rather than have his daughters perform in such a place, he hired some professional actresses. And so um, uh, Mrs. Turnan and her daughters, who were all professional actresses, and Ellen Turnan, who was the age of Dickens's second daughter, Katie, the 18, I think, 
And uh, he took up with her. Obviously, we don't know precisely, you know, whether and when, but uh, he went completely... My father went completely mad at that time, as Katie says. It was just, you know, it was just horrible. I think it was a sort of midlife crisis. He had 10, um, 10 children. His wife, she was sort of a bit overweight, but, I mean, you know, you've had 10 children. And the marriage had been quite... Uh, until then, really... They seem to be, you know, very affectionate. His letters to her are full of affection and domestic stories, you know, what the children have been doing and that sort of thing. Um, so they seem to be... But anyway, so all these turned, and uh, he did... Uh, he made um, his wife, Catherine, leave the house, and uh, he sort of, you know, pushed her out of the family home. And when I was younger, I never... I said, oh, well, she had to go... But now, when I'm older, I think, well, the youngest child was only six, you know, so that was really a horrible thing to do. And uh, she wasn't... Uh, the eldest child, Charlie, chose to live with her, um, but she didn't really see uh, the younger children um, much at all, uh, certainly not until after Dickens died. So it was a really horrible uh, episode, and he um, he behaved very badly. He... He wanted to issue this personal statement, as he called it, explaining to the public what had happened. Well, I mean, nobody really knew anyway. I mean, how, how would... So it appeared in his magazine. It was called a person. It was like a press release, we would call it, I suppose. Um, you know, this couple are no longer together. And um, his, he wanted his friend uh, to publish it in Punch, I think it was, Mark Lemon, who was the editor, and he refused. And Dickens never spoke to him again. So he broke with a lot of his friends then. It was, and he had to change publishers uh, because his publishers didn't, you know, uh, thought this was awful. So he, he stopped his magazine, Household Words. He stopped that and he started publishing, he started editing a new magazine. So it was a time of great rupture in his life, very manic. When you read his letters, they were very manic um, he fell out with, really, he fell out with Angela Burdett Coutts, the woman I was talking about earlier, the heiress, the woman who funded his charitable work, because she took Catherine's side. And um, so it was, it, was an, it was a nasty time. He had to, lots of, um, I say lots, I don't know, but quite a few men had mistresses in those days. We know Wilkie Collins did. We know various other people, you know, famous people. But Dickens was, special, wasn't he? Because he was sort of Mr. Family Values, if, if you know what I mean. He, he was the man who stood up for the, you know, the domestic, the, the, the family and so on. And so he thought it would be really bad for him if, if this came out, the, the affair with, with Nelly. Um, he set up, and there's amazing research done by an, an American uh, scholar some years ago, and she, she sort of found out about um, the arrangements that Dickens made. He had a house that he rented under an assumed name um, in a suburb of London so he could visit Nelly. They did lots of trips to France. Um, and some people think that she may have borne him a child, but we, we don't know. As long as we're talking about his relationship with women, what about his early love that came back to him later on and some oh. of the things that he said about her once he saw her? Oh... <laughs> Maria Beadnell. So he was, this was his great uh, sort of first love, you know, and some wonderful melodramatic letters he writes to her, you know, broken my heart. And um, she reappears as Dora in David Copperfield. And Dora is sweet, 
but she's pretty silly and um and then she dies so that's quite convenient and then dickens uh met maria beadnell wrote when she was married she wrote him out of the blue in in, in the mid 1850s and dickens seems to have thought that he could sort of rekindle everything this is just before nelly turned up actually and he um she she says oh can, can we meet he says yes but i um you better come at, you know at a different time i don't want my you know he kept it all secret and she says, well, I, you know, I'm fat and toothless, you know. He says, no, no, I'm sure, you're, I'm sure you're still as wonderful as you ever were. And, of course, when they met, she was, um, well, I don't know about, yeah, she was probably like that. But she was also very silly and gushing. And then so Dickens reproduces her in, as Flora Finching in Little Dorrit. And Flora is the funniest, one of his funniest movies. She does, she speaks in these very long sort of breathless sentences and go all over the place. And she, she's... She, the thing about Flora is she's very good-hearted. She, you know, she's, she, she supports little Dorrit. She's, uh, uh, but she's, she's romantic, she's silly, but, she, you know, she's good-hearted. So she's got that going for her. Now, you, your third book, um, which is something that's very much available here in the United States, uh, a very uh, short history of Charles Dickens. Tell us about that mm. book and how did that come about and uh, why did Oxford Press want to publish this? Uh, well, I think that was Oxford being very kind to me. That they have a series called Very Short Introductions, which is a very famous and, and distinguished series. Um, and it's um, <laughs> you've got to write, you know, they're very short, so you've got to be very concise. And uh, so after I did the letters for them, and uh, uh, one of the editors at Oxford said, would I like to put forward a proposal? to do a, an introduction, one of the very short introduction series on, on Dickens. And, of course, that was a, a gift to me. So, um, But as we all know, writing short is more difficult than writing long. So <laughs> it takes you a while. Um, but it's a challenge, isn't it, to, to get your thoughts, uh, everything you think's worth that people should know. As an introduction, um, because I think lots of people have heard of Dickens. Lots of people... His characters have this amazing life, don't they? Like, you know, Miss Havisham or Oliver Twist we've been talking about or Fagin. Um, so lots of people, uh, or Christmas Carol, of course, is most famous one, which we haven't talked about. So, every, you know, people know Ebenezer Scrooge, they might have an image, but they might not know that much about Dickens. Now, of course, there's the most amazing amount of academic scholarship and, and uh, research, but... Uh, what someone needs as an introduction is perhaps not that, but a, a way in. So that was um, a challenge for me uh, to think, well, uh, w what are some nice ways into uh, what is so special about Dickens? How did he die? He died, uh, <laughs> he died of a stroke. Um, he, uh, it, you know, so he, he just got wore out. Uh, he, he, um, people who saw him in the latter years of his life, in his mid to late 50s, said he'd aged uh, very quickly. George Eliot saw him then and, and commented on that. And he was, you know, he's leading, as we said, he's leading this double life with Nelly. He's, he's going abroad. He went to America, this absolutely punishing trip um, in, in America. Um, and then there are these uh, readings which would send his heart rate soaring 
and um, so he collapsed after he get that the one that's particularly the the, the the murder of nancy by it was very very dramatic um people in the audience used to faint which of course he adored and uh so all that was a tremendous pressure obviously on his system and his doctor uh he had i don't know maybe a series of small strokes his doctor told him he must give up the public reading so he had a farewell tour and then he went off to write uh, Edwin Drood. He'd, 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 his health was compromised by being in a railway accident uh, five years before he died. And he, uh, he was writing right until the last day of his life. He went off to write in his chalet. It was a little summer house that he had in his garden, in, in, in his house in Kent. He was writing. He was writing letters. He went into dinner. I think he more or less had a stroke at the dinner table and, and he, he, he died the next day. So it was very sudden. And, I mean, a nation really went into mourning. You know, it was, it was a great blow. You know, and particularly as you're halfway through a novel. So it was a very dramatic moment, I think, uh, in 1870. I don't want to pass that comment you made about the uh, railroad accident because that's a story in itself. What, what was that? Yes. So this was in Staplehurst. It was a little, it was, uh, he'd been coming back from Paris on the boat train. Uh, you know, you come overnight, or, sorry, you come to, you, you, you get the train from Dover to, to London. And he was with, we think he was with Nellie and her mother, because he talks about my companion and the two companions, female companions. And um, the train, uh, uh, uh points it, 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 it was a bridge uh, over a river the points weren't set right uh and the, the train fell off the line into the river and i think nine people were killed a lot of people were injured and there are stories of dickens going around uh, giving brandy from his flask to, to to the injured and trying to help um and then he realizes this is so classic dickens he realizes that he's left the manuscript of the next number of our mutual friend which is his last completed novel. He's left that on the train. So he clambers back up. I mean, this is a train, a carriage, which is sort of, you know, halfway, halfway down an embankment. And he climbs up. He gets, he gets the manuscript out and, 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 and saves it. And then he, and he makes really sure that Nellie and her mother aren't, you know, he, he distances himself. He gets them out of the way really quickly. And then the next day... He makes they weren't hurt, but they were shaken. Obviously, I think they, maybe Nellie had minor injuries, and he sends her, you know, lots of um, sort of convalescent gifts and you know baskets of f- fruit and everything. And um, so, so we, you know, uh, that, that's how we know about it. And then um, after that, he found re- he had loved being on railways. He found them being on a train quite good for writing, actually, um, and some wonderful railway scenes in his novel, uh, particularly in his novels, particularly Dombey and Son. After the accident, he doesn't like the vibrations of it. They upset him, you know. He gets anxious. He's a nervy, more nervy traveller. Um, and then, as biographers often point out, he died on the fifth anniversary of the Staplehurst accident, which had been in, in um, 1865. By the way, um, I, I didn't ask you about this earlier, but uh, you mentioned mm. uh, George Orwell reading him at nine mm. Graham Greene mm. praised uh, Dickens' novel, David Copperfield. Uh, mm. David Cameron said it was one of his favorite books. But the one I want to ask you about is Sigmund mm. Freud said that mm. David Copperfield was his favorite book. What's that all about? Yes. 
Well, that's wonderful, isn't it, Dana? He, I think he gave it to his fiancée, didn't he? So it's, it's about memory, how you retrieve things from your memory and how your memory makes you what you are. So the first line of Copperfield is whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my own life or whether that will be somebody else. I'm sorry, I'm a bit paraphrasing. These, these pages must show. And it's a bit like I'm, I'm writing this to find out what my life is, to understand myself. And that's like a talking cure, isn't it? I, I, I talk or I write to find out about myself. And there's uh, particularly, there are a few key uh, retrospects. There are passages, there are chapters called A Retrospect, about four of them throughout the novel, in which David pauses the story. He's telling it in the first person. He pauses the story to look back and see himself at that time. You know, I see myself you know, my first love, my first, you know, and it's so moving. And you can see the mind working, uh, you know, uh, thinking, pausing, reflecting, what is this about? How has this affected me? Um, so very, uh, it's very apposite, very fitting that that should be Freud's favorite novel, I think. Um, and I think Freud says, doesn't he, that I'm, I, I, I'm doing what the novelists and poets and storytellers before me did. And I think he learns you know, that uh, he learns a lot from, from Dickens, I would say. And, of course, Dickens's characters work, uh, quite often their minds work through dreams, work through images, you know, in the way that Freud sees our minds working. Well, at the end of his life, he's deceased. The children come back to their mother? Um, it's, sorry, is this in Copperfield? No, no, no. I'm sorry. I moved on. This is Charles Dickens' oh. life himself. But, I mean, the children lived away f from uh, the mother during, uh, you yes. know, except for the one child. But then after he d died, did they go back yes. to their mother? So, th so well, she was living in, in, uh, in, in Gloss Crescent in London. And so what happened was that the eldest son lived, uh, took over Gad's Hill, which was Dickens' house in, in, in Kent, and she would visit there for Christmases and trips and so on, so that, so that she would see them there. But they never, they, they didn't all live with her again, I don't think. By the, time, uh, by the time Dickens died, the family had been dispersed. The youngest son had been dispatched. Two, two of the sons were sent to Australia, and you know, another one was in India. So they, the family, by then the children were grown up, and when I say grown up, they were teenagers. I think he, you know, he was in his mid-teens, the youngest, when he went. Um, heartbreaking scene. And um, so by then, the, uh, the, the, you know, as I say, the family had been dispersed. But she did meet, I don't think she didn't see her youngest son again because he was, he was in Australia. Uh, so, you know, really, really sad. And she loved children, apparently. She used to give parties to children in the street, you know, who lived in her street. So uh, a really sad uh, sort of story for Catherine, I think. Um, but uh, her, her family did, you know, her, say Charlie, the eldest son, did look after her. So if somebody's um, who hasn't, and I'm one of them, didn't pay much attention to Charles <laughs> Dickens in my life, other than reading your books, the letters <laughs> and your short introduction, what would you suggest they do uh, if they want to, you know, for instance, isn't there a, Dickens Museum in London? Oh, the, Doughty, the museum in Doughty Street is absolutely wonderful. Uh, and they, they've they just opened a new exhibition, actually, about Oliver Twist, which I'm going to see tomorrow, so that, I'm very excited about that. So, that, uh, and they have a permanent 
display of all sorts of fascinating uh, things to do with Dickens. It was the house he lived in uh, when he was writing Oliver Twist and Nicholas Nickleby, so when he was a young man making his, his way. So it's a great place to visit, and they have a good website as well. And they... Um, uh, uh, yeah, so, so, so that's a great place to go. Um, there, there's also the Dickens Fellowship, which I'm proud to belong to, and they have branches all over the world, uh, and they meet, um, and they, uh, uh, they're not, you know, it's not, it's not a, a, a particularly an academic thing, but it's a love of Dickens and all he stood for, you know, the, the causes that he thought were, uh, he wanted to support and so on, the, you know, looking for, out for the poor and that. So um, the Dickens Fellowship meetings are always a delight. Um, and, of course, there are some wonderful Dickens biographies to read. The Claire Tomlin one, I think, is terrific, and Michael Slater, as I've mentioned. So um, there's, there's a lot to, to read, but the best thing to do is just to plunge into his novels. And if you haven't read... David Copperfield. I am so envious because you're going to have such fun. It's going to be such a pleasure. Jenny Hartley, Emeritus Professor at uh, Roehampton there near London. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. Oh, thank you so much. I enjoy it more than anything you can think of. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.